2020 is a year of many symptoms. And perhaps you've gone online this year at least once, maybe more than once, to discover, to read through again, what the symptoms of COVID-19 are. Maybe you found yourself with a fever, or maybe uh, your food didn't taste quite as good and you didn't know if it was your spouse's cooking, or maybe you were losing your taste. You had caught COVID-19. Now, if you were concerned and you tested positive, you will likely take precautions to make sure that you don't get others sick. Even if you're not particularly worried yourself, you don't want to pass it on to others who might be more vulnerable. Imagine if you knew that someone who currently has COVID-19 was getting ready for their shift working at the hospital or the nursing home. They have COVID-19 and they're getting ready to go to work at a nursing home, to work at the hospital. Doesn't sound like a good idea. Would you let that person continue with their plans? Go to work as normal? Or would you warn them? Not just for the sake of others that they might infect, but even for their own good. Right? Wouldn't you be eager to save them from the consequences of their reckless behavior, going to work and potentially risking spreading COVID 19 to those who are vulnerable? I imagine you would do your best to try to stop them. Well, James' first century audience had been ignoring symptoms which indicated that they were spiritually unhealthy. And despite these disturbing symptoms, some even thought that they were spiritually healthy enough to become teachers. They were lining up to go teach, even though in this, you know, picture they had COVID-19. In chapter 3, which we're starting this morning, James urges these first century Jewish Christians not to think of themselves as more spiritually healthy than they are. In James 3 verses 1 through 12, James focuses on the tongue and what it reveals about our spiritual health. But James is also concerned that By ignoring the symptoms, it will lead to greater judgment. So in James 3.1, James says, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur stricter judgment. James says, If you're sick, please stay at home. Now he's not saying stay at home from church or stay at home because you're sinning, but don't teach. James 3.13 kind of follows along with a similar idea. Who among you is wise and understanding? And to many in James' audience, they would raise their hands. Oh, ooh, me. The sick were too willing to help others instead of focusing on obeying themselves. This morning, we're going to focus on what James says about the power of the tongue in verses 1 through 5. And I'm going to start by reading James 3, and I'll read from 1 to 12. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Now, if we put the bits into the horse's mouth so that they will obey us, we direct the entire body as well. Look at the ships also. 
though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder wherever the, in, the inclination of the pilot desires. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a force is set aflame by such a small fire? And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. For every species of beasts and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. But no one can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing, my brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives, or a vine produce figs? Nor can salt water produce fresh. We're going to focus this morning on James 1, James 3, verses 1 through 5a. And we're going to jump to 5a because really we, we, we see kind of his, his central idea for these first five verses. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. And it's nearly impossible for us to hear this English word boast and not think of proud, haughty, self-exalting speech. But James is really most likely here making a matter-of-fact statement. He's not using the word boast in a critical way. The tongue boasts of great things because it actually does great things for its size. It's unusually powerful. When you read the word boast here, so don't think of a heavyweight boxer before, before a fight, you know, and when the two boxers are kind of like facing off and they're trash talk, talking how one of them is going to, to uh, bring down his opponent and demolish him with his giant fist. Instead, you can imagine a weakling with his ribs sticking out, shorts that are way too large for him. He's trying to hold him up. But he's got this disturbing, unsettling confidence, calmly saying to the other heavyweight, I'm going to win. It's going to be a total knockout. Is that kind of boasting? That's like our tongue boasting of great things. Where does this little tongue get off boasting of how powerful it is? But it is. The tongue is small but powerful. Its boast of great things is not out of pride, but out of a reflection of reality. A single bullet can boast of great wars, right? Wars have begun with a single bullet, like World War I. Invisible bitcoins, I don't even know if they exist or not, boast of great losses and gains. A flea or a mosquito can boast of great plagues. That's not proud, self-exalting boasting. It's just a matter of fact. And this leads to our big idea this morning. Don't underestimate your tongue when diagnosing your spiritual health. Don't underestimate your tongue when diagnosing your spiritual health. This morning, we're going to see two ways that the tongue's power is revealed. 
so that you will examine your tongue when evaluating your spiritual health. So we're going to see two ways the tongue's power is revealed so that you will examine your tongue when evaluating your spiritual health. We don't want to be like James' audience who just assume that everything is fine, who very eager, oh, I'll teach, I'm one of the wise ones. Instead, we want to evaluate our spiritual health accurately and humbly. And so we're going to see what the tongue's power reveals about that health. I've worked hard on phrasing this first line, and I'm not really happy with it, but we're going to have to just deal with it. I'm going to have to deal with it. I've been dealing with it for days. I can't come up with anything better. But it's this. The tongue's power is going to be revealed in judgment. The tongue's power will be revealed in judgment. We're not going to see the fullness of the tongue's power right now, although we'll see some. But ultimately... Its power is going to be revealed in judgment. And that's the first way that the tongue's power is revealed. See, James' instruction in 3 verse 1 is surprising in many ways. He says, Let not many of you become teachers, my my brethren. Now this is a surprising statement. Not many of you should become teachers. It's surprising, really, when we think of a lot of what the rest of the New Testament says about teaching. It's surprising when Paul encourages people to use their spiritual gifts in Romans 12, verses 6 through 8. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy according to the proportion of his faith, if service in his serving, or he who teaches in his teaching. If we have the gift of teaching, we ought to teach. It's surprising that James says not many of us should be teachers when Paul encourages men to aspire to the work of an elder. 1 Timothy 3.1. It's a trustworthy statement. If anyone aspire, if any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. Part of the work is being able to teach. Or in Titus 1.9 describes it as those who exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who teach. Who, who contradict it's good to desire to be a teacher to be an elder this command that james makes is surprising when we see the value of teachers in ephesians 4 11 through 13 and he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. And so we can say, James, that seems like a worthy goal. Shouldn't we attain this, the stature of the fullness of Christ? Shouldn't we seek to become like Christ? Isn't it going to require us to be using the gifts that God has given us? As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 7, But to each one of us is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. James, don't you want what is good for, for the whole body? Now, James is not discouraging these early Christians, because the church doesn't need teachers or because the church doesn't need elders, as if the gift of teaching were not valuable or if all the spots have been filled on the elder board. The Bible doesn't tell us how many spots there are on the elder board. See, James' purpose isn't ultimately that they don't teach or never teach or that those who are gifted don't teach or that no more elders join. 
James' purpose is that they would count the cost before signing up. And that's what he says in verse 1. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. Count the cost before signing up. Now, there may have become, there may have been strong motivation to become teachers in the early church. In, in Judaism, being a rabbi was a position of honor. It came with privilege. Now, Within the church, the, the, the elitism of the scribes and Pharisees was gone. This is the church. The leadership structure is completely different. The old leadership structure was gone. In a sense, you can imagine as the wild west of church leadership. Gifts are given. A man who aspires to be an elder can if he's qualified and has the gifts. Whoever was gifted in speech could compete to be an influence in the early church. Now, Jews, as most of James' audience uh, 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 appears to be in this early date of this earliest letter in the New Testament, Jews were already marginalized in the Gentile world. They were already shamed among the Gentiles. And now these Christian Jews had been further ostracized by the Jewish community. So now they are the ostracized among the marginalized. Many of them were poor. They were lacking honor. They were living shamed. The easiest path to honor, and maybe for some of them to find a living was the position of teaching. Now, we know that many, uh, pers- uh, that many pursued this tempting path because of how many warnings there were in the New Testament against false teachers. There were lots of false teachers because this was a desirable way to receive honor and salary. Now, perhaps that's why James has to pull the brakes as ambitious men line up to be teachers. They may have been gifted, but were they qualified? See, halfway, since halfway through James and the first chapter, James had been defining what true religion is. It's to be a doer of the word and not just a hearer. James 1 verses 26 to 27 If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. James is very concerned that those whom he's writing to did not have true religion, but had a worthless religion. He describes what what true religion is, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and fathers this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. In James 2, verses 12 through 13, he warned, So so speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Again, and we saw this at the end of James 2, Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. And that was James' concern for this church that their actions was not matching up with their confession. 
that they were falling short of a transforming faith in Jesus Christ. And we'll continue to see this in James, especially in chapter 4. He was very concerned that there were those among the, among the Christians whom he was writing who had not yet been reconciled to God, who didn't have saving faith, who were still facing merciless judgment. And so he warns all who want to be teachers, as such, we will incur a stricter judgment. Now, this idea of stricter judgment is probably a surprising concept, too. See, it's not like God's uh, standard of holiness is a sliding scale, right? Oh, he'll only hold you up to little holiness, but you, you're going to have to deal with a lot of God's holiness. But stricter judgment was taught by Jesus, and it was a concept that the Jews were, were familiar with. Listen to Jesus' teaching in Luke 12, verses 47 to 48. And that slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accord with his will will receive many lashes. Jesus is finishing a a parable here. And the previous slave he had described was one who demonstrates that he did not know God. But then it's, and and, and this is a challenging uh, 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 parable. We're going to focus on the point that Jesus makes. But he says, the slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accord with his will will receive many lashes. But the one who did not know it and committed deeds worthy of a flogging will receive but few. And then Jesus makes his point. From everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And to whom they entrusted much of him, they will ask all, all the more. See, those who line up to be, an, uh, to be teachers are announcing, I'm the one who has been given much. I understand God's word. I've been blessed with God's word. I want to teach what I understand. I've been given much. And so Jesus says, um, um, among other things we've been given much, they're going to be required much of. There's a similar idea of stricter judgment in Mark 12, verses 38 to 40. Jesus says, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like respectful greetings in the marketplaces and chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets, who devour widows' houses and for appearances' sake offer long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. So that those who were in it for the honor and for the appearances and for the looks and for the financial benefits will receive a greater condemnation. These were those who who knew better, who taught better, but lived much less. Matthew 12, 33 to 37 Jesus says, the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good, and the evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Now, Jesus is not teaching how someone is becomes right with God, how they 
receive a standing that is right before God so that they are welcomed into his presence. He's not telling them how they declare that legal righteousness that is only through faith in Jesus Christ's sacrifice in our place. But he is talking about judgment before God. By your words you will be justified. And that's used in the same sense that James has been using justified. By your words it will be evident that you actually have new life. That you've been saved. That you are right with God. Who you are is going to be evidenced by what you say. But he also says by your words you will be condemned. That on judgment day for many words will lead to hell. James' primary point in verse 1 is not that, excuse me, James' primary point is not that we need to be really careful to make sure that we accurately teach the truth, although that is obviously essential. We want to make sure that we accurately teach God's word. James' primary point is whether the truth we teach is the truth we live. God expects the teachers of his royal law, as he calls it, to love his law of liberty and to live by his law of liberty. Those who want to teach must be ready to model. They must practice what they preach. When someone teaches, really, they they are saying to God, I am willing to be judged by these commands I'm going to explain. This is a sobering day to preach, right? I am willing to be judged by these commands that I'm teaching. Someone says, I'm not only saved through faith, but I can show you My faith by my works. If someone can't say that, they shouldn't teach. Someone is saying to God, you've declared me righteous in Christ. I'm someone who lives righteously by God's grace. Not perfectly, but righteously. And I can teach others to live righteously too. If I feel the weight of saying that. If you teach, you should feel the weight of that, because that is what you're saying. That's why we incur a stricter judgment. We set ourselves up as those whose example can be followed. A teacher can say with Paul in 1 Corinthians 4.16, Therefore I exhort you, be imitators of me. And in Philippians 3.17, Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. If you are a teacher, and this is, this is to, to, to men as elder, to men who aspire to be elders, but the Bible does not say that only men have the gift of teaching. Women teach. Older women teach younger women. We are all to be making disciples, teaching the commandments that Christ has given us. We're all to be an example. But when we set ourselves up as a teacher, we are saying, you can follow my example. We will be judged by what we teach, not just for the content of what we teach. In a sense, I think that that that's almost easier to get right. It is easier to get right. 
We're blessed with many great sermons and study tools and commentaries. It takes hours of work, really, to get it right. But that's easier than living right. We will be judged by what we teach. God expects us to live up to what we have instructed others in. Matthew 16, 27 You know, the Bible talks so much about judgment to those who are already saved, who are already declared righteous. We will still stand before God and he will evaluate us. And if we are in Christ, he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. But he will evaluate our works. Matthew 16, 27, the Son of Man is going to come in his glory of his Father with his angels. And then we'll repay every man according to his deeds. Romans 14, 12, so then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Will your deeds match up with what you've taught? 2 Corinthians 5, 10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. We must be concerned with our fitness for teaching. We must first be concerned whether we are truly saved, And second, we must be concerned whether we understand God's word well enough to teach it. But third, whether I am doing what I am telling others to do. Am I willing to do what I am teaching others to do? Not only do I know God's standard, but am I holding myself to that standard? Recently in the news, uh, uh, Governor Newsom was criticized by the right and the left for attending a friend's birthday party in which the governor's COVID-19 restrictions were not followed. He didn't practice what he preached, right? People were judging him according to what he required others to do. God is going to judge us according to what his word as we teach it, requires others to do. See, God doesn't forget what we teach. He doesn't forget what we teach when we teach our children, when we're busy making disciples, when we instruct the church. What you know you should do is revealed when you teach, right? What you know you should do is revealed when you teach. And so when you stand in judgment, the true power of your tongue will be seen as you are held by God to the standard you taught. That's just, that's heavy. That's the power of the tongue. So James says, many of you ought not to be teachers unless you are willing to be held accountable, not just for the truth of what you say, but also for the truth of how you live. See, the tongue's power will be revealed in judgment. God takes what you teach others seriously. Now, perhaps it's tempting to think, well, the only person who's going to teach is one who is sinless. No one would be crazy enough to teach after reading that. But James knows this is impossible or else none of us would be taught. He says in the beginning of verse 2, we all stumble in many ways. So, teaching does not require us to be sinless. 
right? We all stumble in many ways. Teaching doesn't require us to be sinless, but it does require a maturity. And that's what it says in the second half of verse 2. Well, I'll read all of verse 2 again. We all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as, as well. The word translated perfect, it, it can mean perfect, but it often means, means that which is, is mature. Excuse me. What is mature. It has the idea of, of, of achieving its purpose of coming to completion. James is not suddenly describing someone that they have this capacity to become perfect in this life. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man. Ah, you just, you just don't stumble and then you'll be perfect. No, that's not James' point. In that case, no one would be able to teach James says, if anyone does not stumble what he says, he's a mature man, able to bridle the whole body as well. And the word bridle has the idea of controlling. James is describing our ability to become mature people. Someone who does not stumble in their speech. They are fit to be teachers, not just because what comes out of their mouths is true, but because the tongue's power extends to their bodies. They are able to bridle, bridle their whole body as well. And that brings us to the second way that the tongue's power is manifested. The tongue's power is revealed in actions. So the tongue's power will be revealed in judgment as we are held accountable for what we teach. But the tongue's power is also revealed in actions. And James is a surprising author. And what James says here is surprising. This link between controlling our tongue and controlling our body, managing our tongue, managing the rest of our body, is not always obvious. Now, we may hypothesize that what James is saying here is, is, is that our tongue is, is, is such an unruly part of our body that if we could simply tame it, the rest of our body is going to be easy. And while that may be true, James is actually saying something that goes even further than that. James is going to argue through, 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 through illustrations that the tongue is the tool through which we control our body. Now, that should sound a little odd, because that's not really what we think, right? I mean, like, my speech here is not controlling my hands. But that's really what James is going to say. Our tongue is the tool through which we control our body. And James uses two illustrations to make this point. And his point with both illustrations is that by controlling something small, someone controls something much larger. And the first is in James 3.3. Now, if we put the bits into the horse's mouth so that they will obey us, we direct the entire body as well. And a bit is the part of the horse's rein that, that goes over the horse's tongue. It's about five inches wide. 
But with it, even though it's a few inches wide, the rider can steer this massive horse. Horses weighing up to 2,000 pounds can be steered, steered, I think, by this bit over the horse's tongue. The rider who controls that small bit controls the massive horse. And the second illustration is in James 3, 4. Look at the ships also. Though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder wherever the, the, the inclination of the pilot desires. Now, even a nuclear-powered aircraft, which is over a thousand feet long, is still powered by, now, two, but two 22-foot-long rudders. And it's over a thousand feet long. The pilot who controls these rudders moves the massive ship. So, in James 3, 5a, so also the tongue is a small part of the body, yet it boasts of great things. The tongue is so powerful that the one who controls it doesn't just control his speech, but also his actions. The bit, the rudder, the tongue all boast great things in comparison to their size. Now, perhaps this doesn't seem logical. What connection is there between my tongue and the rest of my body? But let me ask, how different would your day be if you only said thankful words? How different would your day be if you only spoke hopeful truths? What if your lips were, were full of what Christ is doing? instead of complaints about what you wish he would do? What if you filtered your daily disappointments through the promises of Christ? What if you, you tended to your, your deep hurts with the compassion of Christ? What if your mouth was full of God's steadfast love and faithfulness? Would the rest of your body follow? James says it will. Your body will follow your speech. Now, I think it's valuable to follow this idea of the tongue just a little further. James is ultimately not talking about the muscle, but about speech, right? Some of you might be quiet people. And perhaps some of you have a habit of not speaking much. Well, what if we include in our speech what we text or what we repost and respond to on social media? What if we included all of our fingers typing? What if we include the things we mutter under our breath when no one else is in the car or while we're working by ourselves? What if we include the kinds of things we think all day long, our, our ongoing speech, but it's not verbalized because we're always thinking in words. We're always thinking in speech. So what is your internal dialogue? What is the transcript of your thoughts? Is it grumbling against God or praising him? Is it critiquing others or giving thanks for them? Are they thoughts of judgment or of compassion? Is it envy and entitlement or contentment? 
Is it pride or humility? Are they self-centered thoughts or God-centered and Christ-centered thoughts? Are they temporal thoughts or are they eternal? Is it lust or is it gratitude? Is it full of physical comfort or of Christ's comforts? Is it self-satisfied thoughts or God-pleasing thoughts? Is it rehearsing wrongs or offering prayers? Is it worry or trust? Is it fear of failure or ambition for the spread of God's kingdom? The tongue is simply the overflow of this internal speech. Matthew 12, verses 34 to 35, Jesus says, For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good, and the evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. Our speech, the tongue, James isn't talking about the muscle, he's talking about our speech, but the speech is just the overflow of what's on the inside. Matthew 15, verses 18 to 19 But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man. The body follows the mouth which flows out of the heart. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. If we are going to have different speech, whether internal or or verbal speech, If we are going to have speech leading to different actions, if the rudder of our words is going to steer the ship of our life according to the chart of God's word, we must begin with different thoughts. There has to be something different in our hearts. Mature actions won't follow immature thinking. Is your thinking full of Jesus Christ? of his power to heal, of his compassion for the needy, of his servant's heart. The fact that Christ came not to be served, but to serve and to give himself as a ransom for many. I've been thinking this week, I read about Jesus walking on the water, coming to the disciples, saying, it's I, don't be afraid. That's what needs to fill our hearts again and again and again. It's I. Don't be afraid. Is God's gospel your self-speech? Not just where we focus when we see our sin, but, but the air that we breathe and the ocean our thoughts swim in and the meadows in which our, our mind wanders. Is God's grace to us in Christ Jesus? Is God's election of us? Is God's redemption of us? Is the reconciliation we enjoy with him? Is God's justification of us in declaring us righteous? Is God's adoption of us as sons and daughters? Is God's, spe- is God's sealing us with his spirit? Are, are these the, the, the keys that we keep returning to? Is, 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 is that the enter key? And is that the backspace key? And you know when you're typing in your thoughts and you just keep hitting it again, Again and again and again. Is, 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 is that those doctrines? Is that what is filling our hearts? If you have been stuck in a pattern of disobedience, and whether it's of lust or of complaining and grumbling, examine for a minute what have you been saying to others? Think about that. Now, I know it's not normally what we think about. 
We, 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 we normally think about what we're looking on, 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 online or actually memorize a verse. But what have you been saying? Does your speech reveal complaining? Does your speech reveal resentment? Does your speech reveal an entitlement that you deserve better? Is your speech stubborn? Is it despairing? Is it worldly? Is it dissatisfied? Or has your speech been content and thankful and hopeful and gracious and full of compassion and mercy? Brothers and sisters, our, our, our mouths have to say these things because our heart is full of them. Right? We, we, we want to live differently in a way that pleases God more. If we're going to have actions that please him, then our mouths need to please him. And if our mouths are going to please him, it's going to be because our thoughts are pleasing to him. And if our thoughts are going to be pleasing to him, it is because they are not focused upon ourselves, but upon Jesus Christ who loved us and gave himself for us. We have to, we have to get more of Jesus. We have to get more of him into our hearts and then our mouths are going to be speaking about him and we'll be thankful and humble and appreciative and joyful. And that's going to turn to all kinds of unselfish actions, loving actions. James says, and we saw this in verse 2, if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. An unbroken pattern of sin reveals a broken pattern of speech. So we can spend a lot of time restructuring our lives and doing all these things different, and that's good. But we have to listen to ourselves. What is coming out of our, our mouths? And then let's follow that back. You know what comes out of our mouths? It's just the speech we say all the time. Right? It's, it's all that we're thinking. This is a different kind of, 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 of gospel-centeredness. It's not just going to God when we see our sin and we need to be forgiven. It, it's, it's saturating ourselves and immersing ourselves and even baptizing ourselves in this great good news of God's grace to us in Christ Jesus. And then our spirit, Thoughts are going to turn into speech and our speech is going to turn into actions and we'll be able to be the people who can teach. James has been building these illustrations so that we appreciate how powerful our tongue is. The battle is for our tongue. If you master your speech, both the audible and the internal, then you will master your bodies. If your body is out of control, it is because your speech is out of control. Your tongue is powerful. Your speech, really, it's your speech, right? Your tongue determines how you spend your days in this life. Your tongue determines how you spend your days in this life. So we got to listen to it. But God is listening to your tongue and will use your tongue's teaching when evaluating where you will spend eternity. And that is not about how you get saved, right? We know we are only saved by faith in Christ Jesus' finished work. But Jesus said, for by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. God is listening as we teach to say, yes, his life is matching up. Not perfectly, but truly. 
Your tongue will lead you in the path you choose throughout this life. And when you die, you will follow the path you taught into judgment. Right? You're going to follow the path of your tongue in this life. It's the rudder of your ship. And then when you die, you follow the path you taught into judgment. Your speech reveals who you are. It reveals who you are now, and it will later testify to who you are. This is an age informed by symptoms. I bet many of us can rattle off 10 to 15 symptoms of COVID-19. Don't ignore what your speech is saying about you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. And while this is such a sobering warning, there's also so much hope here. Really, James has, has, has given us this, this key to sanctification. Lord, I pray that we would be people who would be examining our tongues so that we'd be cautious in what we teach, but that also so that our lives would be the overflow of our speech. Help us to be people who are so full of Jesus' Christ and Jesus Christ's grace and his mercy and his love and the way he dealt with, with helpless sinners. He touched lepers. Father, help our hearts to be so full of Jesus Christ that our, our, our actions will follow our speech. In Jesus' name, amen.